The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Bradford Film Festival years ago. So it that was partially what it reminded me of. 
uh, it's got an odd structure. It's kind of like three stories in a way, and you can see the joints. <laughs> I, I had the worst possible reaction to both of these films, which was, yeah, it was okay. It's absolutely not the reaction you want to have when you're meant to talk about it. No, it's not. You don't get any birthday cake for that. I, I guess I don't watch many contemporary action films. And I, I I consider a film that's 24 years old to be a contemporary action film. Well, it is interesting, isn't it, though, that looking at speed, it didn't feel that old, apart from the cell phone business. No, it it still feels very Whereas Ghostbusters fresh. is 10 years before, and it looks completely different. You couldn't switch on Ghostbusters and think, is this a new film? Is this an old film? You know Ghostbusters is an old film, just looking at it. I think uh, partly the setting because it's it's New York of it's the New York of Taxi Driver. It's the New York where everything is horrible, still, and you know there's mouldering corpses by the side of the road all over the place, as is my understanding. There was another reason I wondered if 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 maybe no, actually I picked Speed, didn't I? No, you picked Speed. I you picked Speed out of a list of eight or nine films that I gave you. You gave you gave me a list, and I said these are the ones I haven't seen, and I think you then picked Speed. Did you pick Speed because of my passing familiarity with the LA Metro Red Line? Uh, no, because I wanted to watch it again. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, no, I just thought it would be a contrast because I've never got off at Pershing Square, so I can't tell you if it still looks the same. Uh, generally, I, I get off at uh, Hollywood and Vine or Hollywood and uh, Highland. There's only about a dozen stops on the um, LA subway, isn't there? It's a very, it's a relatively small system. It's expanding. It actually, has different coloured lines, you know. Oh, it has more than one now. The last time, the last, the last time I looked at the map, it just had the one. The, no, it, it is expanding, but there's still this whole big, massive chunk of the city. You can't get to Beverly Hills on the metro. Ah, oh. you have to take a bus. But, I mean, if you want to see the uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame, uh, you just go to uh, Union Station and uh, get on the metro there. Go on the red line, get off at Hollywood and Vine. You can see the Capitol Records building and you're there at the Hollywood of Fame, uh, the Walk of Fame. And you can probably follow it to uh, Hollywood and Highland, get in there and go back. Well, that's that's going to be useful information, I'm sure. But um, we're wondering if, if you actually want to walk down Vine... Uh, to Sunset, uh, you could then um, walk along Sunset, go to the Cinerama Dome. Um, I, now, I don't know when this is going out, but of course, Amoeba Records is closing. If you if you are in town before Amoeba Records close, you have to see Amoeba Records. If you keep on, you can see Sunset Sound, where some of uh, the Beach Boys' most famous records were made. Then as we walk back up Highland... Sorry, right. Uh, we're talking about speed, weren't we? You know, I'll reach through my phone and my arm will come out the other end. So my opinion on speed, in in short, is that I think it's a template of how to do a, a thriller. It, it maintains suspense all the way through. It develops its characters nicely in the background so that you feel there's human stakes to everything. And it, it keeps everything almost almost believable. It's just heightened enough to be thrilling and exciting, but everything has a, a grounding in reality. 
and that keeps the uh, the audience's emotions engaged. That's interesting you say grounded in reality because one of my notes here is this film makes Mythbusters cry. <laughs> it's it's more emotional reality rather than anything else. Right, okay, because Keanu Reeves should definitely be dead before the bus blows up, the first bus blows up. The shockwave in, in, in that building at the beginning should have killed him. Yes, I think you, you could be right there. He does a lot of his own stunts, you know. My, my wife likes Keanu Reeves and I don't. I don't dislike Keanu Reeves. You have, you have no strong feelings. Well, the first film I saw him in was Much Ado About Nothing. And he's not in his comfort zone there. So the first thing I saw him in was Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I'd never seen that. Well, that's the that's the key Keanu Reeves text. That's that's the film. That's the film where everyone agrees he gives a fantastic performance. Well, the, the thing is, is that a lot of eighties and nineties cinema is a closed book to me. I could probably watch, I could watch Ready Player One, and ninety nine percent of it would probably pass me by. I, I've seen Back to the Future. I'm like Captain America. In that, I get that <laughs> reference. Yeah, I, I understood that. Just earlier today, thanks to a tweet, I spent a good five minutes trying to work out who Sarah Connor was. Oh, you've not seen The Terminator either? No. There's a certain type of film, I don't know what the name for it is, but that there's sacred texts to a whole generation of geek bros, and I have not seen most of them. I was I was 22 before I saw Star Wars. I've seen Star Wars twice, which I think is the most times anybody's actually ever seen Star Wars. What, in one day? No, it was about uh, 20 years apart. I once watched it. I know what I know. What was it called again? I know what you did last summer. I once watched it twice back to back because I had li- because I had literally nothing else to do. And it doesn't improve with age, even if that age is an hour and a half. So for some reason, there's something in speed that wasn't engaging with me, but I can't criticize it on any meaningful level. It's just, it, it, just didn't, it just didn't quite click. I thought Dennis Hopper's motivation was thin, or at least not enough was done with that motivation. When does the wisecracking villain really come in when do villains stop being scary and become flip i would say it's about the time that shane black started writing screenplays that got produced so it's a lethal weapon around then um oh no die hard of course so this felt like it was made to a template i think it was written to a template i think it was um like when i saw Mr. Bridges, whose first name isn't Lloyd. Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges? Is Jeff Bridges in this film? Jeff Bridges isn't in this film. Jeff Daniels? Yeah, okay, him. Yeah, that one. I actually had to re-watch Ghostbusters just before we did this because I missed it because I was watching it with Gary from Jeff Cakes of Proust and we ended up on a long rambling conversation about how I have to keep straight in my mind that Harold Ramis isn't John Landis. And then I ended up talking about how I can't remember the names of both of the guys who hang out with Will Hay. 
So I have this <laughs> problem with with names, and then we started talking about the idea of Ghostbusters as a Will Hare film. So let's come back to Speed. Jeff Daniels, I knew what was going to happen to him. You knew that he was going to die. I surprised how late it was. It happened in the film, but it's like, yeah, he's he's going to die. Um, he's going to. Uh, Keanu Reeves is going to end up with Sandra Bullock. I don't think anything surprised me. I don't think there was any point. It was like, whoa! Now that was completely out of left field. I liked um, the character arc of the guy from Spin City, the annoying tourist. Yes, I th- I think that he's he's like the 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 poster child for the way all the bus characters are written. They all get their little moments. So you, you feel like they're all real people. They're not just like background extras. They've all got lives of their own somewhere else. And um, the way that the, the tourist is written, that he never he never becomes actively likable, but you just become more empathetic with him as the film come, goes on. I didn't think he was that bad. It's mildly annoying. What's wrong with being mildly annoying? I'm more than mildly annoying. Oh, no, you're not. You have only spent, like, a couple of hours at a time on Skype with me. Well, you're a delight. So this this was, like, a really well-made hamburger. Yeah, okay. It's it's to be enjoyed. And, yeah, it, it, it has nutritional value. But nothing, there was no, like, oh, what, what's happening here? Also, lift, lifts are not that dangerous. Well, they are when they're covered in bombs. Well, yes, but that's that's the that's the big risk. Is uh, why did he go to all that bother? Why didn't you just say you could, there's a bomb in the lift? Trap the thing. The whole thing is not. I've set up a bomb that will blow off the safety mechanism, which I'm not sure is going to be that. It just sort of says, right. I've stalled the lift between floors, and there's a bomb, and the pressure wave from the bomb will kill everybody inside. Give me three million dollars. Yeah, but he's also crazy. I mean, a, a lot of the movie you can justify by saying, yeah, but the villain's crazy. And there's an interesting idea in there that I don't think's explored with him. I mean, it's quite a leap, isn't it, to go from bomb tech to bomber? Or is it that much of a leap? Actually, wasn't the original idea that um, Daniel Bridges, uh, that uh, Keanu's partner was going to be the mad bomber? Yes. And you know who was the original idea to play the main character? Jeff Bridges. Ah, right. Maybe that's how I got confused. I can only keep so many Jeffs in my head. Yeah, well, there, there is a plethora of them. You know, if around. the soundtrack had been done by Jeff Lynne, I would be undone. No, it was Mark Mancino and uh, with a theme by Billy Idol, which I enjoyed listening to uh, all the way through as the credits played. Normally, I would just turn it on and thought, no. I'm going to listen to this Billy Idol song all the way through. This is a sensible, <laughs> this is a sensible use of my time. As I danced around the room. I think I would have liked it better if his partner had been the bomber. It would have felt a bit obvious. I think that 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 trope was a bit played out by then. The idea of the uh, the the the, uh, the partner being the secret villain. Because this way, you know who it is from the start, and it becomes more of a battle of wits between Jack and Howard the two characters rather than suddenly this uh this this surprise which doesn't which wouldn't have, it wouldn't have really worked i think as a suspense 
He should have been. Well, this is the thing. He should still have been killed. But the bomb. But of course, but it doesn't matter whether or not he he dies. The bomb is still armed. But that's the whole thing. We then end with Keanu who's in this weird shattered place because it's like he he can't he couldn't trust his friend and now he can't even get vengeance because his friend died in some other. Also, I think it should have been in black and white, and it should have been uh, anachronic and uh, in Sanskrit. You know, uh, there's only so much that reshooting can achieve. And there should have been intertitles that quoted the Tibetan Book of... The Dead. Good Housekeeping. Oh, that one. Yeah, I guess guess his partner being the bomber would have been obvious, but then the, the taunting, laughing psychopath what would have been a big surprise? What would have really somebody on the bus? Maybe, or maybe, the, maybe the chief. Maybe the guy with the sports car. Yes. <laughs> he actually comes back in the second movie. That is good because I thought he deserved some sort of reward. He gets his boat wrecked in the second film. Oh, for heaven's sake! No, he de- he deserves. You know, when when they give a medal to Keanu Reeves, that is, that guy should at least have some little reward as well as having his car repaired on the LAPD's dime he should have a reward because he cooperated and if it hadn't been for him Keanu wouldn't have been able to get on the bus yeah and he was a black man in a sports car <laughs> who was who found himself in the presence of a member of the LAPD and they, I like how they, they do reference the fact that he, he immediately protests that this is his car and yes, yeah, I, yeah, I know. That's why I'm stealing it. That's, that was a nice reversal. It it is in a way, but also it's kind of like, yeah, this is a this is a problem. I mean, they were making those kind of jokes about the LAPD long before the current situation. There's an episode of The Critic where I think he gets kidnapped and the LAPD show no notice, and then is like. Uh, Oh, it's a black man in a nice car. Send for backup. <laughs> yeah. So what what would what were you hoping I was going to get out of this? Um. Well, I was hoping that you'd enjoy it a bit more than you did. <laughs> I did. It's not. It's not like a dreadful film. It's not like I could never sit through this again. Oh, good heavens! But uh, perhaps that you'd be able to draw a line from classic suspense movies about the Alfred Hitchcocks and such thematically and in terms of the way the story structured to this kind of thing the the idea of the constant forward motion the um yes the the in, the the addition of new challenges all the way through the story it's just peculiar how the challenges stop and start lift challenge lift challenge completed now bus challenge bus challenge completed Subway challenge. Also, what happens to Dennis Hopper was was a little bit of an anticlimax. You want to see him being led away and suffering. Well, he's already had his hand blown off. By the end of the film, his head's rolling around somewhere. Yeah, it's a bit quick, isn't it? He just really wants to see him horribly injured. I, I just wanted to see him outlive his fame. I just wanted to see him have that moment of it was all for nothing. I should have just stayed where I was. I shouldn't have done this. Oh, but he he was too eccentric for that. He would he would never have backed down. 
I also like the um, the character arc that Jack has. He's he starts off as the the cocky, uh, you know, devil may care type who would shoot the hostage if need be, although obviously not like in the head. Um, and by the end of the film, he can't bring himself to do that, and he stays with uh, a, a civilian in 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 danger, risking his own life, and he he's develops emotionally over the course of the story and you don't really get that in action movies now you just have like tom cruise running around with a haircut because the really exciting thing is at the end when the subway car bursts out of the street and it goes down hollywood boulevard not too far from where a segment of the sitcom club was recorded oh just near the highland center where we recorded part of our discussion about odd man out with John Inman. Oh yes, I see the connection now. Because um, uh, Dennis Hopper's character only has an odd number of fingers. <laughs> it just so happened that DCT was in the neighbourhood. So we met uh, we met with him and Squiddy outside Grauman's Chinese. <laughs> what did you have? The spring rolls or something then? See, part of me was thinking, you know, that when they're on the bus, they should have just made the bus do a U-turn and drive it all the way up north to Fresno and let the bomb go off because nobody would care. <laughs> I think the That's not would... a slam on Fresno. That is Jacques' people who run Fresno. One of my friends from Fresno once met me in Bradford and said, how do people have a good time here? And I said, well, what they do is they wander around talking about how much they hate the place. And he said, what? He said, that's Fresno. I said, yeah, we used to have a lot of nice buildings and they got pulled down and replaced by concrete. And he actually made a mobile phone call to the US to tell his friend that there was another Fresno. <laughs> so do you have any uh, further remarks or comments about this this fine feature? So the Speed 2, does, is there anything to tie Speed 2 to Speed 1 other than Sandra Bullock? Um, It's on a boat. And the boat can't stop for some reason. I can't remember. And it's got another mad villain in it, played by a famous actor. And uh, at the end, there's a big special effects bit where the boat crashes into a town. Right. Sandra Bullock was very good in this. She is good, isn't she? Again, it's, again it feels like a fully rounded... Yes, yeah, a, a fully rounded character, likeable all the way through. She wasn't, wasn't even... feisty. No, she felt normal, like a real person. Wasn't even first choice. First choice was first choice was Halle Berry. Right. Second choice was Ellen DeGeneres. Ah, yes, I was reading about that. The character went through some developmental idea, so she would have been the comedy sidekick, and I guess they would have had to have. I guess he would have had to have uh, end up with the annoying tourist or the like Latino the guy who just turns out to be a criminal. Huh. There's the other la- there's the other Latin guy, uh, oh, Hispanic, I think. Uh, Ortiz, the big the big guy. He's he's all, he's all up and on the up and up. I mean, but I like the I like the idea of um, a character being both love interest and comic relief. That would that that would be worthwhile because this movie doesn't really have a comic relief. I mean, Alan Ruck a bit. Uh, Sandra Bullock does get a quite a bit of funny dialogue, but she's not really a comedy character because it's she's too normal, for want of a better word. 
the the humor is sort of neatly spread everywhere. But no, I think never... if they'd got Ellen DeGeneres, they wouldn't have allowed him to end up with her because she's too funny. Well, I think it might depend on who they got to play Jack. If it wasn't Keanu Reeves, if it was Keanu Reeves, then that would just be weird. I can't I can't see the two of them together, even like on on, on like her show. That's it. That's my thing. It's the whole thing. It's it's well made, but it's a little bit normal. It's not heightened enough. It's not. Um, you mean it's? It feels too realistic in inverted commas. Actually, I'm just willing to say it's me. There's a part of my soul missing. No, no, it's it's and all, all the there. stuff that's important to people isn't important to me. It's not that this film's important to people. It's just that it's generally regarded as being very good. I mean, as I said, it's not a deep film by any means. It's just, I think, a really well put together thriller that has stood up to the test of time. And I think that's fine. I mean, you don't you don't hear like fans going on about speed in the same way that they do about Ghostbusters or Star Wars. They say, oh yeah, speed, that's a really great good. Good then. Yes, what a wonderful film. My mum, my mum thinks my mum thinks it's a good film just because you know it, some it, they could have made this film in the fifties. And I think it would be very similar and would stand up the same way. I don't. I don't think it's a matter of. Yeah, and it it has it is part of that lineage. You are right. Uh, there's nothing it does with the suspense that it does wrong. And yet, director Jan de Bont spent the rest of his career, or is spending the rest of his career, making a sequence of very dullish films. Which are not worth anybody's time because he did Speed Two, he did the terrible remake of The Haunting, with um, Liam Neeson and Owen Wilson, which is a partnership for the ages. Um, he did a Tomb Raider sequel, which everyone's forgotten about, and he's I think he live I think he lives in like a like a like a poor house now, like he sleeps on the floor. Well, that's wrong because he made Speed. There's nothing incompetent. Are any of his films incompetent? The Haunting is pretty incompetent. Oh, okay, right. There's a. Uh, you've seen the original. Have you seen the original Haunting? No, I haven't. Okay, in the original, the the all the ghosts. It's all done with suggestion. It's all done with editing. There's never any like spooky visuals or anything like that. It's all done with suggestion, and that's why it's it on filmstruck. So- Might be, but in the remake, it's all just like CGI furniture and spooky faces coming out of the wall and it just looks goofy I mean Eddie Murphy in The Haunted Mansion was more effective as a scary film it's it's pretty shit did, did that bomb? Um, I think it, I, it didn't make its money back I don't think it was a huge disaster but it may not have been too expensive Speed two. No bond. good because I don't want there to be a successful haunted mansion film. Because if there's a successful haunted mansion film, they'll mess up with the ride. They'll put whoever's in it every flaming where, like they did with Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, the Eddie Murphy film. Um, yeah, the, the Eddie Murphy film bombed, and um, Guillermo del Toro apparently wanted to do a version for quite a while, and that's one of the thirty or so projects he's working on. No films based on rides in Disneyland. What about the people? Because they'll mover? spoil it. I I don't want seeing. Oh well, the, the people mover's gone. So they're doing a Jungle Cruise film. Oh no! no. Oh. 
I mean, it's bad enough that they put all the Disney properties in Small World now. Oh. Well, maybe they'll make a film out of the Hall of Presidents, and, and then and that'll be educational. That's Disney World. Don't care about that. I have been to Disneyland, so I, I'm vaguely familiar with all these sorts of things. They could do a soap opera about Main Street USA. Well, you know the big castle, you know Cinderella's castle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's where I live. Oh, nice. That's where I am right now. Put my head out In... the window, spit on some tourists. <laughs> <laughs> so that's speed covered, I think. Um, a resounding, a resounding shrug all round. What of the other film that I made you watch? Ghostbusters. It was okay. Oh, right. Good. I didn't like Bill Murray. It was interesting watching it again. I think the last couple of times I've watched it, I thought, yeah, Venkman is kind of a dick, and he never stops being a dick. I don't think he's kind of. Here's the thing. How many films have I seen that have Bill Murray in? I think this might have been the third film I've ever seen with Bill Murray in. And in the other two, he's exactly the same, and the whole point of the movie is stop being this person. You are being punished for being like this. Is, is one of them Scrooged? Yes. Yeah, well, that's uh, perfect, because that's maybe the best adaptation of A Christmas Carol there's ever been. And the whole point is that he has to stop being Bill Murray and be a better person. I know you're trying to goad me, but yes, it is a very no, good no, no, I adaptation. Agree. I'm not goading you. I agree. I love Scrooged. It's my favourite Tim Burton film. I find that the fact that Tim Burton isn't involved helps curb his excesses. <laughs> I saw a Tim Burton film once that had colour in it. <laughs> what a wonderful dream that was. You know I don't like his Batman films? Oh, that's a shame. I rather like them. I think Batman Returns. I've done Batman Returns on this show. I um I think it's rather good. Uh, Big Eyes I would recommend because it's it's a Tim Burton film that feels like a Tim Burton film, but it also feels like other people have actually had a hand in it. Right. Because it has it's the, it's the Tim Burton film that has lots of color and sunshine, and none of his usual actors. Right. You see, I kind of like Ed Wood, but I don't really like Johnny Depp's portrayal. Uh, his his version of Ed Wood has this very obvious flop sweat at all times and it's like no i think part of the whole point of edward was that he was handsome and charming and very persuasive yes you should have been able to believe that all these people would have fallen in behind him because he's got this kind of errol flynn kind of look when he's a young man so ghostbusters um i was thinking that what what really should it should have been is that dan Aykroyd should have been bill murray Rick Moranis should have been Dan Aykroyd. Eugene Levy should have been Rick Moranis. And Ernie, what's his name, should have had something to do. Well, a main reason there is that during the long process of the film's development, the character of Winston was earmarked for Eddie Murphy. And then when Eddie Murphy wasn't interested, the role was scaled back so that they could give it to a lesser known actor. Well, they should have. It's like if if you're going to do that, then cut him, because in some ways, not having the black guy in it would probably be less worse than here he is. Okay, go back. That's it. You, they've seen you. Yeah, I see what he's you mean. there, and he has nothing to do. I am 
going to watch Ghostbusters 2 to see if he gets stuff to do in Ghostbusters 2. He's, well, yeah, he's much more of a major player in Ghostbusters 2 because he's, to begin with, he's in the movie all the way through. And he's much more the the regular voice because they've got three scientists and Winston. And Winston is sort of the voice of non-scientific but intelligent common sense. This was also interesting to me because I, I, I was once compared to a character from Ghostbusters and now I've seen it. Craig, I am going to kill you. Oh, who was it? Uh, Harold Ramis. Well, in what context? Because uh, In context that I was, I was out uh, for a drink and uh, Craig, who, who clearly saw himself as Dan Alcroyd, said, We're Ghostbusters! Oh, yeah, the three personalities, they're all here. And I know he didn't think I was Bill Murray. Maybe it was a reflection on your intelligence and uh, specific and uh, broad-based expertise. I found Dan Aykroyd kind of fell between two stools. I know he's meant to be the boyishly enthusiastic one, but then when there's when there's scientific exposition, he kind of blends in with Harold Ramis. He doesn't get to do the 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 Dan Aykroyd motormouth bit that he's so good at because Harold Ramis is also doing that but in a much more deliberately flat deadpan way so here's one of the interesting things yeah I had that kind of reaction to it to a certain extent again I didn't dislike it and I liked it better the second time the first time I found it terribly flat but one thing that was interesting you know saying about the rules and normality it doesn't have this stopwatch structure and that's the end of act one act two and here's act three here is what the characters have learned here it it hovers around the three characters they are meant to be types but they're not like the approved tv tropes types exactly they're more of a blend of different archetypes between them it's not a cookie cutter thing by any means. It's interesting that it's before. Isn't there some book about screenwriting that everybody now reads? And once you've read that book, all of Hollywood mainstream is spoiled for you forever. Uh, is it screenplay by Sid Field? It... Sid Field? Sid Mead. Sid, Sid Mead is the concept designer who did Blade, who did Blade Runner and all that stuff. Sid Field wrote screenplay. And there's Robert McKee as well, and Blake Snyder, and they've all written books on how to write screenplays, the structure of screenplays. And when I went to film school, <laughs> we were we were told, well, yeah, these are these are good guide books, but you could just write whatever story it is that you want to do, and not give a fuck about structure, and just worry about it later. Just write when it's you do. It's a good first... film school you went to. Do, do 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 when you write your first draft, just put down everything and don't worry, and then just kind of shape it as you redraft so that it sort of works because because these was structures... Russell T Davis there and did he walk out before somebody used the word redraft <laughs> no it was the same school that both Christopher Nolan and Guy Ritchie went to right but also Julian Fellows oh <laughs> ah so they said the, you know these these structures are these are recipes these are like helpful guides but you don't have to use any of them. They're 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 there when you when you need help. So what did they tell you about Joseph Campbell? 
Who? That's good too. Yeah. <laughs> I knew who Joseph Campbell was. They never mentioned him. Right. Because I remember hearing something that there was like a, a, almost a campaign of people just like faxing studios saying, if you don't do this, you don't have a hero. These are the stages. Yeah, it's it, it's formula, and formula is the enemy of originality. It 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 just means, as you say, it becomes cookie cutter. And that stuff died with Cervantes <laughs> or Cervantes. Once you have the idea that the call to adventure is, I want to have an adventure. Or who's the greatest detective in fiction? Batman. <laughs> But Sherlock Holmes is pretty successful. Why does he do what he does? Because he gets bored if he doesn't. Because he saw a gap in the market. Yes, that's it. There's no call to adventure. There's no reconciliation with the father. It's the... So this stuff should be dead in the water. It's not modern. Modernity freed us from that. I still find it uh, interesting listening to Dan Harmon talking about his own ideas of story structure because he worships Joseph Campbell and he's come up with his own uh, formula called the story circle. And I just think you've, you've just made a straitjacket for yourself there. That, you know, this, this is what you use when what you've got isn't working and you need to put a framework around it so that you, you know what to do next. Or of course, have you ever read any Nero Wolf? Uh, no, I haven't. I'm aware of him. Rex Stout has laid down these very strict rules for the character. What he does and when he does it. He goes to the Orchid House at this time and comes down at this time. He has lunch at this time. Sorry, there's somebody's decided to mow the lawn outside. It's a bit noisy. And business is never discussed at the dinner table. So the the characters' movements are completely mapped out. And of course, every single book, one or two of them are moved, just to let you know that this time, it's really different. Wolf has left the house. Wolf delays lunch. Wolf doesn't go to the orchid house. So it's one thing to sort of write, here are the rules, and which one of these am I going to blow up? in full view of everybody so they know that this time it's you know it's sleight of hand but that's one way of doing it anyway i don't see any rules behind ghostbusters i found that refreshing are you aware of the way that the script developed originally it was wasn't it set in the future and was called ghost smashers and it was going to be a john belushi vehicle yeah, it was basically going to be a follow-up to the Blues Brothers. Um, and Dan Aykroyd wrote this colossal script, because Dan Aykroyd's kind of a weirdo. Um, and it was something like four or five hours worth of material, and they were going to go off into space, and they had magic wands, and there were giant monsters all over the place. And it was it, it was like something that you'd find in someone's apartment after they've you know blown up a federal building. <laughs> Has anybody adapted this script? Because um, a few years ago, there was a comic, and I, I never finished buying it, called The Star Wars. And it was effectively a comic adaptation of the first draft of Star Wars. 
of General Starkiller and all that kind of stuff. Has anybody done that with this? Um, I don't believe so. I'm not sure that they could because, from from what I've heard, it is gibberish. Um, I mean, I I can't overestimate how much of a nutcase Dan Aykroyd is in real life. Apparently, he's really nice and delightful, but he every paranormal myth and story you will ever stumble upon, he thinks every single one of them is true. Um, he seems to think that Ghostbusters is based on a true story. Um, and it took Harold Ramis getting hold of the script, tearing it down to its bare essentials, and then rebuilding it with a, with a notional structure of the Ghostbusters going into business and encountering this crisis, and just keeping some, a lot of the elements of the original, but just refashioning it completely into something that was coherent and and filmable, in order to actually get to it. and then having to rewrite it again when half the cast that they wanted weren't available. Because they wanted John Candy as um, Lewis Tully, and he had weird ideas. He wants to play him as German, and with Rottweilers. And, right. Uh, Why did they get Max von Sydow? <laughs> Sequel to the Boys from Brazil. You joke about that. <laughs> Max von C- Max von Sydow is in Ghostbusters too. Oh right! Fantastic. He's not credited. He's the voice of the villain who is dubbed. I won't. I won't spoil it. But he's 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 the voice of the villain, and he's fantastic. I didn't even know until a couple of years ago that he was even in it. Um, and yeah, they had to. You know, the character of Winston was was cut back heavily because um, Eddie Murphy didn't want to do it, and obviously, with the absence of Jim Belushi, they had to kind of slightly re-massage things for Bill Murray. And depending on who you ask, Bill Murray either improvised some, none, or all of his dialogue. So it, it had a a bit of a, a sort of a troubled development. Dan explains why I found there was an odd lack of forward momentum at the beginning. The pace kept going slack. One thing didn't quite lead to another. It was just sort of, and then, and then, and then. Rather than... The, the scenes of connecting one onto the next. Yeah, the, even just the... very vague ones. Because uh, on the one hand, we're complimenting it for its lack of obvious structure, but it still needed a little bit more skin on on the flesh. Didn't matter about the skeleton. You need a compromise between dictatorship and anarchy. Yes. Well, I think that's that's uh, the the result of having this... Of loose massaged script, that it kind of was just coming together gradually. But at the opening, it's just like I completely see why they would throw out Bill Murray from this university, because the first thing we see seems to be that he's gaming this study so he can cop off with his students. Yes, yes, and so when they come in, it's like what I I I really don't have that much sympathy. Well, there is a, that small amount of development as well, because at the beginning, he, as as the dean says, he sees science as a scam, as a dodge, and he doesn't really believe in any of this paranormal stuff. He's just using it to to skate by in life, and then when he's confronted by an actual ghost, he's like, "Oh, right. Well, I better start at least talking about this seriously now." And then that he it doesn't quite come source. across though. He's he's so flip and cynical, and he's still fairly flip and cynical at the end. That 
this idea that he's a skeptic who now who now lives in a world where we all know ghosts are real, it doesn't. He's well. That's the thing. He's a skeptic until he actually is confronted with real facts, and this is oh okay. Well, how can I make money out of this? How well, can that's what I, I've got written how, down. Pickup artist. How can, how can I use this as an excuse to sleep with Sigourney Weaver? Yeah. Why is he carrying that amount of tranquilizers with him on a date? <laughs> well, I, I have seen somebody try and justify it saying it, it's New York in the 80s. It's not that insane to carry out a hell of a lot of Thorazine. It's, well, it's... Given the amount of time that elapses during that whole sequence, you could imagine him maybe running out to a drugstore and getting a prescription because he's a doctor and he can kind of bluff his way through it at his Bill Murray. But um, that is a bit of a hole there. I just flat out didn't like him. How did you feel about uh, Ray and Egon? <laughs> the Ray Rose. is Dan Aykroyd, isn't he? <laughs> Yeah, the lawnmower right. is just intermittently so loud. It's, it's, it sounds like it's like thought processes in the background. I, was just, I, was, I don't know. For some, sometimes I watch a film and I, I manage to not retain any of the character names. Well, they're they're, delib- they're deliberately weird and unmemorable. Peter Venkman, Ray Stans. I remember Egon Spengler. I remember that. In fact, for the first half of the film, I'm thinking. Who does he sound like? He sounds like a voice that's really familiar to me. What is that? Why have I heard that voice? And then I realised, oh yeah, it's whoever does his voice in the real Ghostbusters. He, <laughs> he reminds <laughs> you of somebody playing the same character in the same way. Um, I liked Egon. As I say, Ray needed just a bit more stuff or, or recasting move Ackroyd to Murray and I'm trying to think how many films I've seen Sigourney Weaver in Working Girl Aliens no Alien no. Resurrection no Avatar Galaxy Quest and this that's it Gorillas in the Mist no anyway she's very good isn't she Really got. I think she's really got a great career ahead of her. Yeah, I I like her. Um, I think this may have been like her first comedy film, and she's very good. Uh, she she plays it sort of on a nice straight level, but sort of able to balance the the humor with making it natural. Again, she's not a cookie cutter love interest. You could see her going any number of different directions. She could have turned out to have been the villain. She could have turned out to just, you know, not not be as important as it seemed. There were, even though I suppose she might have followed an obvious path with her character, it didn't feel inevitable, just the way she played it. Now, I tell you something else that was occurring to me. To bring it back to my world of low comedy and very British low comedy. I could Watching this, uh, and I know this is probably after all those events, but I could suddenly see why Steven Spielberg wanted to work with the goodies. The stay-puffed marshmallow man wrecking the building. It's like, that is giant Dougal. <laughs> no, it's Kitten Kong. 
Well, yeah, it's it's Kitten Kong, but I was I was th- Kitten Kong is just a kitten. Giant Dougal is is something recognizable. Oh, I it's see. It's a recognizable child-friendly brand turned into something scary by sheer scale. So I'm thinking, yes, there there might have been something in the goodies that somebody who's in New Hollywood can suddenly see. But I think it was nineteen was it nineteen forty two? Is that the name of the film? Nineteen forty one. Nineteen forty one. Nineteen forty one. Okay, nineteen forty one bombing meant that Spielberg suddenly said, well, well, no, no comedy for me," and that was apparently the end of his uh, overtures to the goodies. That's a shame. I mean, as soon as you mentioned it, I could see Bill Tim and Graham playing uh, Venkman, Stans, and Spangler. Yeah, and it's it's like parallel evolution. Uh, it's a, it's a thing that interests me with the monkeys is that i mean the monkeys is kind of borrowing from hard day's night which of course is richard lester who's steeped in the goons of course the goons are also very influenced by the marx brothers and there's actually bits of american comedy in there eccles borrows from goofy ray ellington often plays a character who's a ripoff of rochester there's a slight um jerry colonna quality to some of the strangulated voices and so we get this par- parallel evolution of american and british comedy and it's what it's interesting watching when has it crossed over when hasn't it crossed over when are they traveling in the same directions thanks to some very tangled streams yeah don't tangle those streams yeah now that was a bit of a thing at the end where we've got to cross the streams yeah that's that's very clear script mechanics doing the heavy lifting there and it Don't would have the... been better if it had just been a bit more incidental. Okay, um, I'm, I'm going to mention The Land of Hope and Gloria, the Thames sitcom that was held back for, I think, two years. <laughs> I want to give the other programmes a chance. Uh, th- there's an episode of that where there's a piece of information that's just left there and moved on from that then turns out to be essential to the payoff, and it's like... As much as this is, has a reputation as a bad sitcom, well done. Because <laughs> it completely paid fair. So, here is the outcome they want. Here is the disastrous outcome. Oh my god, they don't want this to happen. Something else here. But anyway, and of course what happens is something else here turns out to be the big payoff. So yeah, I think they could have got a bit more subtle about not crossing the streams. Just been gabbled out. By, by Dan Aykroyd. Do you think that um, the character of Walter Peck was in the right? No. Uh, or if he was, he might have had the right reasons, but he went about it in completely the wrong manner. He just went bullet to gate. He's, he's the ultimate Jobsworth. Yes. I think. And I'm pleased to report that for decades since then, William Atherton has had people yelling at him on the street. Hey, Dickless! That's not right, is it? Well, it, when I read that in an interview, I couldn't stop laughing, even even though he sounded incredibly upset about it. Here's the thing: I thought was going to happen. I thought uh, Rick Moranis was going to turn out to be the central baddie. I, I don't mean that the character. Uh, basically, I was thinking the characters rage and frustration at Sigourney Weaver was going to burst out and make him a demon. And that didn't happen. Weirdly, that's not 
a hundred miles away from the plot of the remake. Right. Okay. And of course, uh, again, we're we're playing no rules. I was complaining about sports car men in speed. Oh, you you've done your service to the hero. You're gone. Rick Moranis. Hey, there's no rules, so we get to see him at the end. Get to spend a little bit of time saying, yeah, his story resolved. And look, the, the, the paramedics are going to take care of him also. He doesn't end up being mocked or jeered at or anything like that. I thought, hey, that's nice. There aren't we're not playing by the rules, so Rick Moranis gets to live. I think in a more modern formula film, he would we wouldn't have even known whether he'd lived or died. No, uh, I there are certain comedians who make the kinds of films in which he would have been belittled, mocked, and then you know eaten by one of the hellhounds at the end of the movie. But you can't do that to Rick Moranis, can you? You can't stay mad at him. He's he's. I mean, even uh, Sigourney Weaver's character kind of has a sneaking fondness for him. Even he's only though... mildly annoying, and also his party—it's square. And yet they're having a nice time. Everyone's yeah, they're having a nice themselves. time, and people have come to the party. They want to be at a party that he's throwing. They like being with him. They, yeah, they want to come at a party. Oh, here's the sexy blonde, own... and she wants to dance with Mar- Moranis because you know. I, I and I I love that he mentions that he's only invited his own clients because so that he can write it off as a tax expense. <laughs> <laughs> that that whole that whole bit that's that single take where he's walking around his party talking about all the food, all of that ad libbed on the take by Rick Moranis. Right. Yes. In the same way that the, the the first scene in the the library, when Bill Murray is going nineteen to the dozen, turns to Egon and says, "Hey, remember that time you tried to drill your hole through your head?" And Egon fires back, "Oh, that would have worked if you hadn't stopped me." Ad libbed on the take by Harold Ramis. So I think that's one of the reasons it doesn't get stuck up its own structures. You've got lots of improvisers around. So you don't necessarily need to know where you're going because you trust somebody will take you somewhere. Well, funnily enough, earlier today I was watching A Futile and Stupid Gesture, the film about the launch of National Lampoon. And it was interesting to see where a lot of these people started out because Bill Murray and Harold Ramis started out on the National Lampoon radio show and then moved on to Saturday Night Live to work with Dan Aykroyd. So these people have known each other for a long time. Murray and Ramis had been colleagues for about a decade before this film was made, so they already had a good sense of their own rhythms, and I think that really helps to seal the character relationships and help if they're doing any sort of off-script stuff. They already know how to play to each other's strengths. I just, I just don't really like that sort of frat house thing that underpins a lot of American satire. It's when it's too broad and lazy. And watching this, I could suddenly see why there'd been so much fuss about the all-female remake. Because this is very blokey. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that going completely in the opposite direction... Well, the the problems with the remake are not the gender of the lead actors. It's the fact that this is quite tight and focused when it has improvised stuff, and the remake seems to be ninety percent fl- 
ad lib dialogue, all of which was left in. Apparently, it had a rough cut of over four hours. Right. Because I know you went to bet for the remake at one point, didn't you? I did, and that's largely because I was getting fed up with the people talking uh, unqualified, unmitigated bullshit and blaming it on the fact that the leads were women. It's got nothing really to do with the fact that the leads are women. It's, it's to do with having an undisciplined director and a not good enough script. Right. Even um, Red Letter Media did a video about it when it came out, which I thought was very mean-spirited. And then about six months later, they sort of retracted that by doing a much more considered and thoughtful dissection of the film. They still thought it was terrible, but they were able to give good reasons this time. I've never watched those. They're interesting. The start, the the one he did on the Phantom Menace, uh, Mike Stoklata did on the Phantom Menace, is a very well thought out dissection of why that film doesn't work. And it it really sh- it shows George Lucas in an extremely bad light because it demonstrates that he has no real idea how to make a film or how to structure a story, even in the loosest sense. I mean, Star Wars itself it was a fluke. Star Wars was massively restructured in the editing by his wife. Yes, yeah. And he had not that much input in The Empire Strikes Back, where a lot of dialogue was improvised. That's meant to be the worst of the three, isn't it? Empire? No, that's the, meant to be the best one of all of them ever. Oh, yes, that's it. Yeah, sorry. I, I I saw the original trilogy on the same day. So in some ways it's it's not quite clear in my mind. I tell you what, I'm glad I only had to wait 20 minutes between films two and three. <laughs> I'd have been so angry. <laughs> Go back in a few years, bye. I think Empire is popular, I think, because it's the one that's the more, most character-based and the one that's most sort of building up the whole world, even though not that much happens in it. It's, it's sort of, it feels more like an episode of an ongoing series rather than a big event in and of itself. And I think that's why it stands up very well, because it feels like a two-hour snapshot of this conflict that's going on somewhere rather than Flash Gordon with better effects. But not as good as the effects in Flash Gordon that Phil. Have you have you done that? Um no. Or is it too popular? I would say that in the UK at least, Flash Gordon That's, yes. that is is too popular. <laughs> because it's it's like a sci fi panto. It is, but um It's surprisingly good fun. I enjoyed it when I watched it. I was expecting to hate it. I interviewed Mike Hodges once. Really? Yes. Wow, I'm, that's like wow. Yeah, people Hodges, speak that's... to me. No, it's the it's like Mike Hodges is like a really big name. I'm impressed that you've spoken to him. I'm not. I mean, I've I've had dirty. Looks and he remembered me the second time I interviewed him once, and then um, I think it was just a the second time it was just put your recorders on the desk kind of press conference. Uh he he was insistent that um, uh, Flash Gordon wasn't dubbed the lead character. Is it Sam Jones? Sam J. Jones, yeah. Sam J. Jones. He he said that he wasn't dubbed, but I'm not sure. But he'd said, I don't think, I think this might have been the talk on the night rather than the interview with me, but he said that when he was assigned this, when he took this on, he went back 
to the comic strip and read it and looked at it and tried to make it look like the comic strip. And I thought, that's really interesting because in the back of your mind, it's just the idea, oh, it's all just nonsense. Let's just have fun. And it's like, no, he has actually paid attention. Well, that's that's the weird thing. I mean, I know Mike Hodges as the director of Get Carter, which is a dark, mean, nasty... It's I a, asked it's him a, a stupid question about Ian Hendry. Why wasn't he? Why was he never as big as he promised to be? And I hadn't realised how bad his drinking was. Um, Mike Hodges said that they had to get a stunt double for walking up some stairs. Don't know if the scene's in the film. I mean, he did. I mean, before we just leave this horrible idea of Hendry in everybody's mind, he did fight it. He did try to fight it. I'm sure he did. Uh, but um, yeah, it's a disease, and one can sometimes one can only do so much. And that whole thing that Michael Caine and Ian Hendry really did hate each other. I can believe that Michael Michael Caine hates a lot of people. Oh, Hendry hated Michael Caine because he thought he should have been Michael Caine. He thought he'd had his career. Yeah. Well, they're they're very different screen presences. I can't imagine Ian Hendry being in the Italian job. I can imagine them switching roles in Get Carter. Yes. People complain about Ian Hendry mumbling in the Avengers, but I can hear every word. I've he never seen he... any of his Avengers episodes. All, well, all, there's, all there's, three of them. There's plenty to choose from now. Yeah, there's, there's, they've three, got... there's three and a quarter. I know. There used to be only one, so the uh, yes, his third episode got a standalone DVD release recently, which is the sort of thing that doesn't normally happen. I was I was quite impressed at uh, Studio Canal doing that. So Ghostbusters, um, nobody who wrote this had any understanding of how the Catholic Church works, but I'm sure you know a lot of people have said that about the film because of the the bishop who comes in at the end yeah and he just thought well the church's teachings every every diocese has an exorcist they don't talk about it too much but every diocese has an exorcist it is a job so they would have someone who would take care of this kind of thing yes See, I know there was a film a few years ago that said a thing was sent out saying that every diocese should have its own exorcist because that no, it's that that's already in place. Don't try and make out it's a big deal to plug your silly little film. Oh, that was probably something like the Devil Inside or one of those idiot three million dollar horror movies that makes twenty million because no one reads a review before they turn up at the cinema. Actually, it was. Uh... For the Lego Batman films, I think they eventually realised that uh, they needed to hire a different studio. Yeah, but it's because it's, uh, it's got the Lego Father <laughs> Karras. Um, I, I saw the Lego Batman film this week. It was fab. I was really disappointed. I loved the, the freewheeling creativity and anarchy of the Lego movie. It was such a, 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 a surprise and a breath of fresh air. And then in the Lego Batman movie, it turns out that he needs to have a, like a family. Yeah, that and, that was. And I thought, God, you, you, oh. I just liked the fact that we were kind of laughing at Batman again, uh, and I thought the opening was a partial justification 
partial vindication of Joel Schumacher. You can have, I mean, I think one of the strengths of Batman is that you can treat the character in a huge range of ways. I mean, the Adam West version is just as valid as, you know, anything that Frank Miller did. I know somebody said that, it was Mark Evier who said he didn't like the Adam West Batman because there was this faint sense that William does is pointing at people who like comics and laughing at them. And he is. But I find that the Tim Burton movies are worse for that. I find there's a real pff, look at this, look at this idiot. Uh look at him. He's oh, he's he's all messed up and stuff, and he's short. Ha ha ha. Oh, but Tim Burton's sympathies, I think, have always lined with the the oddball and the outsider. And yeah, but but there was some interview, and Tim Burton said, "Do I look like somebody who reads comics?" Yes, yes you do, Tim. Tim. Yes, in fact, people who read comics try to look like you. <laughs> And that's that's the sense I get from his films is that he doesn't respect the source material. He's not trying. He he thinks it's stupid. And Sam Hamm thought thought Batman was a ridiculous idea. But have you read his? Have you read Sam Hamm's script for the Watchmen movie? Um, I I started it. Oh, I got all the way through. That is quite something. I know about the ending. Listener, you should read that script because it. If you think that the finished Zack Snyder film had flaws that at least at the very least was faithful to what was on the page and the Sam Hamm script was like someone threw the book into a blender and then just added mustard. So Ghostbusters Yeah Ghostbusters, okay <laughs> So you're planning on watching Ghostbusters 2 Yes uh, That's on Netflix too, is it? Yes Um Yes, I think um, you will find it to be more of the same. I can cope with that. Um, Rick Moranis is in it, and he justifies being in it. Is is he playing the same character? He's playing the same character, yes. Um, I don't want to spoil it, obviously, but um, yeah, he's there. But it's it's much more modelled on the car- the uh, cartoon series because ah. Because the the first film has a lot that's clearly aimed at an adult audience and that isn't really suitable for children. It's probably worth a... mentioning Mike Scott here, who I've seen often speak about what an odd film it is in a way that it seems to be a children's show, a children's film with adult jokes that keep bursting up. Yeah. The ghost blowy. Yeah, that was part of a whole sequence that was cut where they investigate a haunted mansion or something, and then for some reason Ray starts putting on all these old clothes and falls asleep. And when he wakes up, uh, you know, the sheets are ruffling. That that whole scene does feel like a bizarre leftover from some other story. Yeah, it's it's not even properly... I mean, it it doesn't really make sense, because you can see in the in the actual shot that he's wearing this jacket over his normal overalls. So what is happening in this dream? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. They could have just left that out. Maybe they didn't want to let the fact that they've done this visual effect go to waste. Maybe the studio was breathing down their neck to make sure it was used in the finished film so they got their money's worth, but it they, they could have done something else with it. So the cartoon... 
the cartoon is very much more stylized, very much more aimed at kids, obviously. And of course, the three main characters, I mean, you know, Spengler and Venkman, they're not in it. No, no, none of them are. It's weird that that it's these it's these other characters who all have the same names as the characters from the film who we know and are familiar with. And no, I was pushing got... you further. I was pushing you to no, no, they're they're not in it at all. They're just uh, the, the 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 three main characters are Spencer, Tracy, and Kong. Oh, that yeah, one. I'm talking about Ghostbusters. Filmation's Ghostbusters. Yes. The funny thing is, I watched um, both cartoon series when I was living in Germany because they were both on at the same time. Not not the same time slot, but they were both running during the same week's worth of programming. So it was interesting to compare the two different Ghostbusters as I was watching them because in the Filmation one, isn't the arch-villain a, a skeleton man living in a cathedral in the, a space warp in the future? Yes, because that seems to have been beamed directly out of Dan Aykroyd's brain. That's the kind of thing that he wanted. I've not been able to establish. I think that version of Ghostbusters, the 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 filmation cartoon, I don't think was ever shown in the UK. It's, It's a difficult one to establish, but I don't think it has. The original live action 70s series, which is where all this tangle comes from that was shown in the uk but only only in three itv regions in the 70s which regions tinties atv and yorkshire i believe it was shown in ireland as well all right that's interesting but it's one of the great mysteries so of course yeah filmation already had copyright on this name ghostbusters yes which is why there was some concern about whether or not the movie could be called that. And there are different versions of the commercial, aren't they, where I believe there are different takes of that commercial where they say, like, ghost grabbers, ghost stoppers. Oh, yes. Oh, there is the moment in that commercial I love where you can see Spangler looking at his mark on the floor. I like that. Um, but the the decision about the title was definitely sealed when they were shooting. And at the end, where they're coming out of the, the building... And the crowd is cheering, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters. That, well, we've got to call the movie that now. So Filmation reached this understanding with Columbia. But I think it was only afterwards that uh, the guys at Filmation said, why Why didn't we just demand the, the cartoon rights to the film? Why the hell did we do this unrelated cartoon with the same name? Go! I don't know. Did they somehow think that because they'd done that, there'd never be a cartoon of the film? I've re- well, is Filmation still in business? I think that might answer your question as to how good they are at this sort of thing. Oh, they've been going for a long time when they did that. But yes, it was a big question throughout the 80s. Why, why is it called The Real Ghostbusters? It's why DC is now planning a movie called Shazam. And they've had to change the name of the character to Shazam because they don't have the rights to the name Captain Marvel. Well, I I do think it's only fair that Captain Marvel is owned by Marvel. And that should leave DC with their own initialed character, Detective Chimp. Yes, yeah. uh, I think he's in that Scooby-Doo one they did recently. Well, the crossover with Supernatural. (laughs) Batman the Brave and the Bold and Scooby-Doo. I think Detective Chimp is in that. Right. 
Marvel, of course, has Gorilla Grodd. No, they don't. don't Gorilla no, Grodd, that, he, DC no, he's well, a flash he? bad guy. Yeah. Yeah, because there was um, that episode of um, Legends of Tomorrow recently where it's Gorilla Grodd versus uh, the young Barack Obama. Have they got... Um, I know DC on him, but I just wondered, uh, has there been any appearance of the mod Gorilla Boss? Who's this really snappily dressed gang mob boss who's also a mod and a gorilla? Yeah, he was the villain in Justice League. <laughs> oh, well, that might make sense. No wonder they didn't use Darkseid. DC are doing some terrible things right now. You know, I don't know if you heard about this. Duncan Jones approached them about doing a movie of Prez. I haven't. I don't know. What, what is Prez? In the 70s, there was this short-lived comic about the idea of a teenage president. And he's he's fairly Bobby Sherman. It's all about, hey, wow, it's we're the love generation, we're the beautiful people. What if the president was a cool kid? Uh, it came back recently, and it was relaunched, and it's set in 2036. And corporations run everything. Uh, the government is trying to introduce an idea where people are fed by a taco restaurant instead of getting food stamps, and in return, they have to wear branded clothing advertising the taco restaurant. And since since the amendment passed that granted corporations personhood, uh, there are no limits on who can run for president. So corporations can run for president and that kind of thing. So what happens is a teenage girl becomes president just because she's a phenomenon on social media. She, she, she went viral. She ends up being president. And so in some ways what you have is Veep meets, in some ways, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, uh, the millennial political... Awakening. It's in the future. Walk, veep, in the future, satire. And Duncan Jones approached DC's film department and said, I'd, I'd quite like to make a film of Prez. And they said, what's that? Do we? I don't think we own that. And he said, you do? They checked and said, yeah, we, we don't really want to do stuff like that. We just want to do uh, Batman and characters that people know about. And that is the reason why their film division is dying on its arse. Yes, they could have been so ahead of the curve. It would have been a medium-budget film. But it, it, Veep meets the Parkland protests in a way. I, I, I know it sounds frivolous to bring in uh, that tragedy, but that is a big thing that is happening now. There is... But it's it's it, it takes the issues themselves seriously but it's not taking itself seriously as it discusses them yes that's fair that's and we actually reasonable. have this she goes on an apology tour and she goes to japan and you know apologizes for the bombings and they say well this is more relevant because oh this will gain meaning by not being being repeated and she goes to other countries and they accept her apology and she goes to Iraq and they just tell her to F off <laughs> it's like hey sorry uh, but so they, they could have been five years ahead of the curve getting a Prez movie out there because while this stuff is in the headlines now it's not really going to start hitting our screens just yet 
No, it's going to take two more years at least. For a movie. For TV, it might be quicker. And I just know that Marvel are going to do something with Ms. Marvel long before DC remembers that it has Blue Beetle. Is Blue Beetle a Muslim as well? No, he's um, Mexican. Oh, okay. But it's that whole idea. He's a teenager. Is he he Bumblebee uh, Man in the Simpsons? He lives in... (laughs) Don't speak ill of El Chapulín Colorado, mate. Especially, uh, we're recording this today on Cinco de Mayo. Oh yes, of course. It's not that big of a deal to Mexicans. Uh, it's it's really more this side of the border that uh, white people throw parties and mistakenly refer to it as Mexican Independence Day, which it isn't. But anyway, um, so but you know he he lives in El Paso, Texas. He's Mexican American. He's a teenager. He's got vast powers that he can't quite get hold of. He's it's like Spider-Man of color. And you could, there's all kinds of different ways of taking that. You, you don't have to make him super political. Uh, but there's all different things. And they're not going to do anything. And instead, Marvel are going to get there first. And DC might then wake up to doing something. I mean, right now, they can't really do anything with Darkseid because everybody's going to think it's a ripoff of Thanos. Well, it serves them right for making a crappy Green Lantern movie, I think. I mean, if 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 they mismanage their own film properties so badly for so long, this is what happens. No one trusts them. They only they rely on their most famous properties, and the whole thing turns breaks into breaks my death heart because I used to be a DC boy, and both in comics and movies they've just become very poor in the last few years. Um, what did you think of Wonder Woman? Um, I haven't seen it yet. I. I'm not boycotting DC movies, but what happened with me in DC movies was I saw the trailer for Men of Steel and I thought, I'm not excited, so I don't think I'm going to bother. I saw Man of Steel and I thought it was terrible. And then I saw Batman vs. Superman and I thought that was terrible. And I thought, right, I'm done. And I was going to skip um, Wonder Woman, but I did a Twitter poll asking whether or not I should. And the answer said that, I shouldn't. So I went to see it and I thought it was great. And then I've skipped Justice League since then because obviously it was terrible. I think there's a copy of Wonder Woman knocking about in this house. So it's uh, it, it gives an indication of what DC would would be doing if they had sensible people in charge. What's some is it pronounced Gal Gadot? I don't or Gal Gadot. It's Gadot. Gadot, right? Gal Gadot. What's she like? Because again, she looked a bit normal. To me, <laughs> normal. Not one of those normal people. Well, I mean, Linda Carter has cheeks instead of cheekbones, and it gives her this completely distinct look. It makes her look trustworthy. She's not. That that was always something I found. That she had this really interesting face, and uh. There was a, a book and film called New Frontier. And one thing I liked in that was Wonder Woman was about an inch taller than Superman. So I thought it would have been interesting for, for Wonder Woman to just have been, you know, slightly too tall, slightly too beefy for normal Hollywood. But um, is, she, is she good in it? She got presents? She does. Yes. I think it, uh, she's a big improvement there than she is in Batman versus Superman, where she doesn't really get that much to do. And uh, they can't write for women, um, but she, she's, 
she feels very much the the center of the film is not just in terms of story but the moral center and she has a a charisma that that keeps it very much focused um i wouldn't say that she's a great actress but given good material she she certainly rises to match it i'll give that a watch then yeah it's pretty good i think so ghostbusters um so you, uh, so yeah, it was, yeah, it was pretty good. Um, Ghostbusters Two is, yeah, I think you'll, I think you'll probably enjoy that. I tell you, who enjoyed Ghostbusters more than I did? Oh, who was that then? David Owen, the politician. Yes, I was trying to find out if the original live-action filmation Ghostbusters had ever been shown in the UK, and I was trying to find out if the later cartoon was shown in the UK. And one thing that popped up in my search was an interview in The Guardian with David Owen. And uh, he's asked, what kind of films do you like? He says, I quite quite a lot of French, Polish, European films. I absolutely adored Ghostbusters and I loved E.T. Those are the sort of things we go to as a family. God, it's Gordon Brown and the Arctic Monkeys again. <laughs> but this is long before that. This is long before those tendencies of spin. I mean, 1985. 1985, that's almost taking a risk, isn't it? I like, I went to a mainstream film and enjoyed it. Didn't uh, Margaret Thatcher say that she really liked Only You? The, <laughs> uh, the, the original, not the Flying Pickets version, one would imagine. I know there was some conservative event where they had, like, get to know your politicians... And was what? What was the last album you bought? And some politician doing a rabbit in the headlights and going, "Um, Dido." I think that was John Gummer. <laughs> I mean, did 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 Edward Heath ever say that he was a big fan of the French Connection? Actually, that's not unreasonable. What live and let die. Oh no, that was about the miners, wasn't it? So anyway, thank you for coming to my birthday party. Mmm. This cake is wonderful. Well, I should hope so. You're the one who brought it. So um, I feel I better explain what's happening in my side of the podcasting world. Yes, I was wondering. I've been looking forward to a new episode of anything that you're doing. We don't know. We are doing something this year. We had very carefully laid out plans... And it turns out that there's a life outside podcasting. Sometimes it doesn't go the way you're hoping. So I've had some stuff to deal with. And uh, Gary has things going off. He has uh, irons in the fire and things like that. So both of us have been distracted. So all of our carefully laid out plans that there were going to be three series of eight shows of each of our different strands, that's all out of the window we will be back. We don't know how many shows we're going to do this year, but we do have contingency plans that are now getting closer to being put into effect as things are just beginning to settle down. Well, whenever you start uh, releasing shows again, I will be one of the first to hear them because I always enjoy them. There is something we might ask you to join us on. In fact, there are two things we might ask you to join us on. It depends if we get them done this year. Well, that sounds exciting. 
Um, is it is it the thing that we talked about before, or is it something else? There's one thing that we talked about before, and there's uh, three silent films. Oh. Well, I look forward to finding out what I'm doing. Um, in the meantime, I look forward to hearing from you again, and um, feel free to relax on my couch for the rest of this party. Way ahead of you. <laughs> Thanks to Telt for making the time for this recording. Cinema Lumber is now on iTunes with 50 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help with our running costs. And we're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and in person at j underscore j underscore phillips, with two L's. However, until next time, back off man. I'm a scientist. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, music and editing by Philip Alderman, and additional editing by Tilda Reiser. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so visit us at www.podnose.com.